Welcome. I am so excited to be preaching today on this passage from Matthew 4. Um, I have a little bit of a cold, so my voice might sound a little nasally, but this passage changed my life. It literally changed the trajectory of my life. It eventually would come to change my career. You see, 19 years ago, I was a freshman in college at... um, California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo, which is the longest college name in the world, (laughs) Cal Poly for short. And um, I was in my freshman year, and this guy named Trevor came up to me near the end of the year, and he said, "Um, Mark, so uh, everybody on the worship team is graduating this year except for you. I'm not sure uh, what you're planning, but you might want to think about it. And it was funny. It was funny because uh, him asking me to lead worship was something I had never done before. I had zero experience. I played the bass in the band. I didn't play a leading instrument. I had never sang in front of anybody else before, except to the walls of my bedroom growing up. I had a guitar that I didn't know how to play, and it had two holes in it, actually. One was the sound hole, and the other was where I had dropped it. (laughs) And uh, I just thought what he was asking was pretty ridiculous. And then soon after, this guy named Rob Dixon, uh, the campus minister for our group, he formally asked me to consider leading worship for the next year. But it came with a condition. He knew that I had never led before. Um... And so the condition was that he wanted to train me for the entire year, mentor me, take me under his wing, show me the ropes, spend time outside of music-related things, like playing countless hours of racquetball, which was awesome because I met my brother-in-law that way, just to do life. He was my mentor. And then the year after, which would have been my junior year, uh, I would lead that worship team on my own. You see, uh, this was also a transition for Rob. He had oversaw the worship band for like eight or nine years, um, but some, now some other areas of the ministry needed his attention. So he needed somebody to take this on. And I remember him telling me that uh, what, he wanted me to lead like him. And I remember him telling me that the most important thing was for me to develop a heart for multicultural worship like him. It was a culture he had built and wanted to maintain in our group. He wanted that story to continue, so rightfully so. Multicultural worship is a beautiful reflection of the diversity of heaven. So when I saw that Martin this morning had planned to sing the doxology in both English and Spanish, I thought, how beautiful to start the service today. It takes me back. Multicultural worship reflects the heart of a God that loves all people, So yeah, me, the guy who had never sang in front of others, didn't know how to play the guitar, and the guitar that I had had two holes in it, now was being asked to sing songs in other languages every week that I did not speak. I sort of felt obligated because I was the only musician left, which wasn't true. They just didn't know about the other ones. So I thought about it some more. But then I heard Rob give a message about Jesus calling the first disciples. I can still close my eyes today, place myself in that auditorium, and hear the words from Scripture when Jesus says, 
Come follow me. I've led worship music almost weekly for 19 years. In my story, music and faith have been intertwined. God has used music, which is something that I loved and knew, to draw me closer to him, as well as to help others meet with him. I have a lot of things I hope you walk away with today, but the most important is this. Jesus is calling you to follow him, and he is calling everyone to follow him. Passage today comes from Matthew 4, like I said, um, but there's some background that you need to know before we jump into it. Um, Matthew is written for a Jewish audience. Unlike the other Gospels, Matthew uses a ton of references to the Old Testament because the Jewish audience would have picked up on it. In fact, prior to chapter 4, Matthew spends all the previous chapters laying down a foundation for how Jesus is the Messiah and connecting the Old Testament to Jesus would have been essential to reaching this people group. So it starts with the genealogy, moves on to the birth, and it moves on to John the Baptist, and it moves on to Jesus being tested in the wilderness, which is reflective of the Israelites in the wilderness. But this time, Jesus passes the test in the wilderness. Then it comes to this one line, and it says, Jesus started preaching and teaching throughout the land, and he starts off with this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. You see, the currency of the world to these first century Jews was story. That's what mattered most. And they went to great lengths preserving the story. So when he says, repent, it's like, he... I know when we hear that word, at least for me, that's not a word that I hear with a good image in my head. Sometimes I think of men holding signs at the end of a parade. But that's not how this word is, friends. It is a call to remember your story. Because if you don't know your story, you don't know who you are. Like I said, the Jewish audience was well-versed in the Old Testament. And in fact, their entire educational system was surrounded by this idea that we all need to know the stories. So at the age of six, Jewish boys and girls would go to what's called Beit Safar, which stands for House of the Book, and the book being the Torah. And the Torah stands, uh, it literally translates teaching, but it's the first five books of the Bible. Say it with me now. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Oh, that's so great of you. Now imagine spending five days a week for five years remembering that. Not that, but the words inside of every single book. Between the ages of six and 10, Jewish boys and girls would memorize the words of their people's story. It was saying, this is our worldview. You need to know it because you are a part of it. Now most... Uh, at the age of 10, when they were finished with Beit Safar, most of them went home to the family trade, um, learn how to manage a household and whatnot. But the very best of those would go on to Beit Talmud, which stands for House of Learning. And in this house, they would spend the next three years 
10, 11, 12, 13. Memorizing all of Hebrew literature, Genesis through Malachi. Memorized. Kids, you should be thankful that's not our Sunday school class. The other thing they learned in Beit Talmud was the art of asking questions. Formerly, it's known as the Socratic, me- uh, Socratic method, named after the Greek philosopher Socrates, right? Um, but it existed in Jewish culture before, and it's, it's simply this. And you heard Michelle Lang last week beautifully preach on and give an example of it in the passage. And it's when somebody asks you a question or when a question is asked, you respond with another question instead of an answer. And in a way, it's tried to say, look, there might not be a single answer to something. You're simply, by asking another question, contributing to the fact that there might be another perspective about it. And so you slowly talk and ask these questions so that you can know and understand something better. So students were taught that. And they were not uh, foreign to it. The heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, they asked questions of God. Abraham says, shall the judge of all the earth not do justice? Moses says, oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Jeremiah, I love this one. You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the faithless live at ease? The book of Job, the most searching of all explorations of human suffering, is a book of questions. Asked by a man to which God then replies, four more chapters of questions. After this school, Beit Talmud, most of these students would go home to their family trade. But the very best of the best of the best, they would go on to the next house, Beit Midrash. And in this house, which is the house of study, they would apply to a rabbi. These young people would go to a rabbi, and a rabbi would quiz them on what they knew about Scripture, how well they knew it. Um, Some of the stuff that I read was really fascinating. First century uh, Jewish rabbis would ask their students, they would give them a runway, and they'd say, these are these three verses, and I need you, and what they were looking for was, you need to ask in the form of a question what the fourth verse is that I'm not telling you. I think we would all fail. Because the rabbi was sort of, the system was set up because they wanted to know, who can we trust with our most sacred story? The story of how God met our people. If the rabbi thought you had what it takes, he would become your teacher and it would become your goal to be like him in every way. You would agree to take on his beliefs and his interpretations of scripture. This was called the rabbi's yoke. And he would say to you, come follow me. Few people were given this invitation and those that did were the best of the best of the best of the best. So rightfully so, stories in this community were very important. If you wanted to lay the groundwork for finding the best people to be responsible with it, this is probably something that it would look like. You wanted to preserve the story. Because if you don't know your stories, you don't know who you are. And now comes our passage. 
you have a little uh, pull out of your bulletin. And I've gone to the great lengths of giving you a little cheat sheet of how I have thought about it. So pull it out, read it with me. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, <coughs> casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. As he went on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and followed him. I want to pause for a second here because there's a lot here. For these first century Jews hearing this, it would have been like trigger after trigger after trigger of cultural contexts, one word phrases that makes them think of something else. The first thing I want you to notice is this. In their educational system, it was a student that pursued a rabbi, but that doesn't happen here. It's a rabbi pursuing a student. Do you see that? Here we go. Um, This is really two stories, and Matthew is asking us to do a comparative analysis of it, which is why I've done the break. So as we go through, there's things that are similar, and there's things that are different, and that's Matthew's way of saying, think about this. There's something that I'm trying to say that I'm not saying. It's a story about two brothers, two sets of two brothers. In that culture, the oldest brother would have inherited the lion's share. But here is a story about two brothers who are given the same thing, the same opportunity. It's a little bit of a way of saying, you're gonna, there's an equality thing here. The next is their names. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John. And this one tricked me because I've read this a bazillion times and I have not seen this. But what is in their names? Why is that important? The first two names are non-Jewish names. And the other two are Jewish traditional names. Now, they're all Jews, but the roots of their names are different. And Matthew is making a case here, and it's subtle, that what's being offered to them, this discipleship, no, this is going outside the bounds. The next one, you see, is about their nets. You see one group casting a net, you see the others mending their nets. This is also very subtle. It's both a sign of economics. The first group would have been um, more economically prosperous, where the others mending the nets, scholars say, is a sign actually of uh, fishermen who live in poverty. Their stuff wouldn't, wouldn't have been the best, so they were mending the nets. And the other thing about the nets is it's also a sign of age. It's a sign that, one, you see one group with their father, and the other one, you see them working. And it's the conversation that says, young and old, rich or poor, Jesus is calling you to follow. Are you with me? Right on. Thank you. 
John. Next, uh, I believe we are number four, fishermen. There's a pause in the conversation with Matthew. The common thing amongst all four of these gentlemen, they were all fishermen. It's like saying, we're all human. We have all these differences, but we're all human. What makes us, what's the commonality between us? We're human. The next one is that word. You heard me talk about it in Beit Midrash. Follow me. You recognize that phrase. It's the phrase a rabbi says to a student when they think they have what it takes to be like them. So does Jesus quiz them or test their knowledge? Check their references? No. It seems sort of foolish to not pick the best of the best. But we find these gentlemen not in school. We find them fishing. And so it comes to the point that Jesus, as a rabbi, he's, he's not looking for the best of the best of the best. He's looking for the ordinary, the common man, common woman. Then it says, uh, number six, we are on. I will make you fish for people. Or as Eugene Peterson says, uh, I'll make a new kind of fisherman out of you. I'll show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. Which I love. I think it's so funny. Um, but I underlined and circled this phrase because what's brilliant about it is it shows us God's character. He uses an analogy they would understand. He doesn't talk over their heads. He uses something they would understand. Number seven in the yellow. Immediately, both times. I think the NIV says, at once. The scene was really funny to me. Uh, almost robotic in a way. Like, really? They just dropped everything they were doing? Left their dad in the boat like, see ya, dad. And I could even see Zebedee being like, hey, get back in the boat. We got work to do. Right? So kids, next time your parents are like, get back here and help, you can be like, Jesus is calling me right now. <laughs> Tell us how that goes. No, but in all seriousness, at the core of their responses is the core to the gospel message. And it's this. Jesus offers these guys something in their culture they didn't deserve. They didn't jump through the hoops of the educational system. It's only short verses. You have a story of grace manifested in a simple phrase. Come, follow me. And that brings us to our last one. And they did. Followed him. And I underline that because as they follow him, they leave their work and they leave their dad in the boat. It's as if they left their family. They assume a new identity. So when you follow Jesus, it's a part of it. You assume a new identity. Are you with me? All right, there you are. Thank you. 
Here we have a powerful story that the maker of heaven and earth would call ordinary people, no prerequisites required to be like him, and even more so that he entrusts them with his story, right? And it's remarkably profound that Jesus believes they can do it. I want you to hear that again. Jesus believes that they can do it. So let me pause and let's do a little pulse check. Brothers and sisters, do you believe you can be like Jesus? Or is it easy for you to start constructing some sort of ladder climbing hoop jumping system that begins with, well, if only... Sometimes we have to battle our own doubt. I think most of us would say that's normal. So listen to these words of Jesus just a few chapters later in Matthew. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think the point is this. Who you are in this very moment, who you were in the moment before, and who you will be in the moment after. Jesus, that call to follow Jesus doesn't change. That doesn't change God's invitation to you to follow him. I think it'd be easy just to stop there, but the message in these four verses doesn't. It's about Jesus calling everyone. There is a message about equality, and there's a common thread that ties our humanity together, and that God's love is for everyone. And then Matthew doubles down on that very idea in the next passage right after this to make that point clear. Matthew draws the circle wider about who is following Jesus. And I encourage you to study it this week. In the lobby, I've placed these big tabloid-sized sheets of paper, which you know that I like to use with our students, so that you can study it. And I encourage you, talk to one of our students. We did that this last week. And I did it in preparation for the sermon because I know that they catch a lot of things that I miss. We have sharp students. So Jesus is calling everyone because God loves everyone. So church, I ask you a question. What does it look like for us to reflect that, to consider that Jesus is calling everyone to follow him, no prerequisites required? I think you should, and we should, and I should, we should expect diversity and make room for it because the church has been having to do that since Jesus has called first disciples. I think we can create a question-asking culture. Asking a question about God is itself a profound expression of faith. Faith is not opposed to questions, but it is opposed to us thinking we know that they're all, all that there is to know. 
To be without questions is not an absence of faith, you see. It is a lack of depth. So when we ask questions about faith, we join the never-ending dialogue between human understanding and heaven. So friends, our motivation, consider your natural response to Jesus calling you. Like these disciples, recognize that what Jesus offers is a story for your life that is better than you could write for yourselves. Friends, the good news is this. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no social or economic ladder people have to climb. When you hear the words of Matthew 11 and you find rest for your souls, it's because we don't have to do, 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 do. Jesus calling these first disciples to fish for men and women instead of perch and bess, which I love that phrase, has never changed. He is calling men and women to follow him in this very moment. In truth, if others don't believe God loves them, then why would they ever want to follow him? So reflect God's love. Reflect his goodness. Reflect the accepting words of a rabbi that says, come follow me to people that aren't the best of the best of the best. Reflect that there is no prerequisites required. There's no ladder to climb. There's no hoop to jump through to get to Jesus. Each gospel has an image that the writer likes to bring its listener and its reader to. And for Matthew, it's that of a mountain, um, which I believe I've said in one of my other three sermons that I've done here. And it is that um, it's not just any mountain. Uh, It's the mountain where the Jerusalem temple was once stood. And here Matthew is drawing the listener to realize the mountain to Jesus is level. Jesus has called us into diversity. He has called us in all the ways that make each and every one of us unique. Our diversity, it becomes a sign and a symbol of a God who loves all people and believes that we can be like him in every way. And in fact, I think we might learn in a life following Jesus that the story we share, the stories that define our identity, the ones that let us know who we are, they can include our own stories of being disciples following Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we, we want to reflect who you are. We want to reflect your calling towards us, to realize that it is something, yes, we, we didn't earn or work for or jump through a hoop to get, but something that you offered us because you believe that we can be like you. We can love others like you. Lord, you made us. Would you remind us of who we are? As you preached, your first words were repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Yes, Lord, remember, let us, help us remember. Help us remember who we are and that we're yours. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen.